All right. How are we doing tonight? Let's say round of applause again for our fathers, please. It's funny. They made it look so nice when they were helping with the homework, but my kids said every time I helped them with their homework, they ended up crying. I don't, I don't understand why. Hey, my name is Steve Ruggiero. I'm from the Newport News Campus. I'll be filling in tonight for Pastor Justin. So it's just it's great to be here tonight. I really appreciate the invitation. One of the things I love about Father's Day is that most of the networks, they load up on man movies. You know, it's like whatever channel you're on, you can really find a good man movie. And I enjoy, you know, a nice romantic comedy every now and then with my wife. But nothing gets my attention, you know, like a really good war movie or a thriller. And I can watch a movie 20 or 30 times. No problem, right? That's my family. They know if it's on and it's a man movie, I got to watch it. I mean, I just watched again a couple of nights ago, A Few Good Men, again, right? I spent all day today watching, um, what's it, Den- Man on Fire by Denzel. You know, so whether it's Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, it doesn't matter. If it's on, I feel this drive and desire that I have to watch it. Well, there's a new movie out that is starting to make its way into my rotation. I saw it again for the second time the other day called Bridge of Spies. It's a 2015 movie starring Tom Hanks as a lawyer negotiating the release of a pilot who was shot down over the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And one of the things I really liked about this movie was this depiction of the Berlin Wall. See, my family, we lived in Germany from 1992 to 95. The Berlin Wall came down in 89, so we were there three years after it came down. And so there were still significant conversations surrounding that wall. So I did some studying up on it. So if you don't know much about it, I'm going to share some of it tonight. So if you like history, you're in luck. If you don't, Hang on, because there's a method to the madness. But I'd like to start by, well, I was going to imitate them imitating me, but Anthony, could you do an imitation of me that you often share as I get into it? (laughs) Right? Did you know? So we're going to start here. Did you know in 1945... In 1945, follow me here, it was at the end of World War II. The Allies just defeated Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. But Germany was divided into four occupational zones. And it looked like this. Wait, where's all my slides? Walls, number two. That's not it. We're getting there. Get to slide number two. So I'll tell you. On the west, there we go, right? You see it now. On the west, it was the U.S., France, and Britain. On the east was the Soviet Union. Well, Berlin was the capital. And even though it was located within the Soviet sector, because it was the capital, it was also divided into four zones. On the west was democratic governments of U.S., France, and Britain. And on the east, it was the communist Soviet Union. And things seemed to be going okay for a little while. It was kind of like they were riding the wave of the wind of World War II. But eventually, things began to crumble. Things began to crumble because over a 15 to 16-year period, millions and millions of people 
would migrate from the east over to the west. And so finally, on April 12th, 1961, the East German government had had enough. They had enough. So in the middle of the night, they deployed soldiers and construction workers into the middle of East Berlin. And while everybody slept, they began to build a wall with concrete bricks and barbed wire. Now think about it. On August 13th, when the East German uh, citizens woke up, the East Berliners, they were shocked. The city was literally being divided in half. In essence, whatever side of that obstacle, that fence, that wall you were on on the night of August 12th, when you woke up August 13th, you were stuck for decades, 28 years to be exact. What started out as just some bricks and barbed wire eventually became an impenetrable wall that was 12 feet high, four feet thick, and stretched over 100 miles long. By the time this wall came down, 28 years later, 1989, there was also, not just this wall, but there was a 300-foot no-man's land in front of it that consisted of gravel and sand that was raked daily to see if there was any footprints. They had police patrolling with dogs that dug anti-vehicle trenches and had electric fences. They had massive lighting systems and minefields. And if that wasn't enough, they had 24-hour surveillance with armed guards in watchtowers that had orders to shoot to kill anyone attempting to escape. Here's the interesting part. When that wall went up, when they started building it, the East German government told their people, their people, mind you, 16 million people living in an area roughly the size of Virginia. The government told them, hey, we're building this wall to protect you. We're doing this to keep you safe. We're doing this so you feel better over here, that the evil influence of the West won't come in here. You're better off. And you know what? Many of them believed it. Why? Because on August 13th and August 14th, they got up every day and they went to work. They came home and they had dinner with their family. Maybe they went to the park and they celebrated their birthday. They could live their lives to a point. To a point. And that point was that wall. It was that wall. And when they would hit that wall, when they would come up against that wall, they had one of three choices. One, they could ignore it. Pretend it doesn't even exist. Two, they could accept it. They could accept it and live a life of a limited existence in captivity. Or they could rise above it. Try to escape and get their freedom. And you know what? In the 28 years of that wall's existence, over 5,000 people escaped. And nearly 200 lost their lives trying. But there were 16 million people living there. So that means that 15,995,000 people woke up every day. And they either chose to ignore it or accept it.
What does that have to do with us tonight? Because I think many of us, we live like those East Germans. Sure, our wall may not be a physical 12-foot-high, four-feet-wide structure, right? But it's a wall nonetheless, and it's a self-imposed wall, a wall that we build around our hearts and around our lives to protect us, to protect us from pain, from embarrassment, from failure, from disappointment, from loss. But inevitably, the wall that we build that is meant to protect us imprisons us. And it becomes a barrier between who we are today and who God has called us to be. When we run up against that wall in our life, just like the East Germans, we have a choice. We have a choice. We can ignore it. What problem? Right? We can accept it. It's just the way I am. Or, which I want to talk a little bit tonight, we can choose to rise above it. Listen what Jesus said. In Luke 4, 18, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. I call this the Messiah mission statement. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives and to set the oppressed free. Tonight, I want to share with you four common walls, just four that are common, that I believe keep us from, from, the, from being the people that Jesus has called us to be, from living the life that he died for. And then I'm going to identify ways that we can rise above it together tonight. Four common walls. Here's the first one, right? The first wall, stubborn resistance. The wall of stubborn resistance. Resistance. Jeremiah said, they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsel and in the stubbornness of their evil heart. Listen to what he said. They went backward and not forward. Folks, from Pharaoh to the Pharisees, stubbornness has been a sin problem that has plagued mankind since the beginning, and we are not exempt. So before I go on, I do want to add this because I know there's probably somebody out there thinking it. Not all stubbornness is bad. It's not. We need to stand by our values. We need to be firmly planted in our principles. We need not to compromise when others do. But that's not what I'm referring to. When I talk about stubborn resistance, I'm talking about hard hearts, stiff necks. Think folded arms and difficult, reminiscent of the expression, hey, I I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm what? Standing up on the in, inside, right? Standing up on the inside, it's that. And here's why staying behind the wall of stubborn resistance is so dangerous, that the longer you live there, the harder your heart becomes. And left unchecked, hard-heartedness, it tunes out the voice of God. It scoffs at spiritual truths. It dismisses the importance of church. And it excuses rebellious behavior, hard-heartedness. It turns divine and godly revelations into mere coincidences. His voice that's speaking to you, that used to speak to you and used to hear, into fleeting thoughts. And eventually, we end up blind to the majesty and the wonder of God's miracles with a faith that's all but sterile and static if we have one at all. 
How does that happen? How does that happen in our life? Well, I say it's part of a, an equation that I call high exposure and low response. When we're repeatedly exposed to the truth over and over without responding, our hearts begin to harden. And why does it happen? Right? That's how. Why? Because every time we hear a message that talks about stubborn resistance, we immediately think of somebody we know. It's immediately someone else. When we start talking about stubbornness and resistance, we elbow like, I hope you're listening, right? But it's never us. Obviously, he's not talking about me. Not tonight. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says, search me, God. Know my heart. And he goes on at the end of that verse, and he says, listen, point out anything in me that offends you. Point out anything in me that offends you. I think there's a lot of things that break God's heart, but a few that offend. And one of the things that offends is pride. And pride is the rebar in the wall of stubborn resistance. But sermons on pride are plentiful. So I'm not going to give you one tonight, but I'm going to say this. The minute you stop learning, the minute you close yourself off to learning, you stop living. Every time you hold your ground, dig your heels in, grip the pew in front of you, when, when the prompting of God is calling something, calling a response from you, you harden your heart. Look, I know it. I've sat in church. I've stood and held my ground, right? I've dug my heels in. And every time we do that, it hardens our heart. But there's hope. And the hope is from Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spear within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender heart responsive heart. If you want to rise above the wall of stubborn resistance in your life, then God is asking you tonight to respond, to respond to him. Newsflash, conviction. When we feel that conviction from God, that doesn't change us. Conviction doesn't change us. Our response to conviction changes us. So when you feel it and you hear it, respond to God. Answer him. Respond with a prayer of repentance and a promise and vow of commitment, and you will begin to rise above the wall of stubborn resistance. Second one. Obviously, if that one was for someone else that obviously not you, what about this one? Arrogant entitlement. Arrogant entitlement. See, this wall is built when the culture teams up with our flesh and joins forces with the devil and convinces us that we are entitled to be happy, entitled to live life our way. Yep. Even as Christians, we're entitled to live life our way. When we're, when we're camped behind the wall of arrogant entitlement, we have a tendency to embrace the blessings of God but ignore the judgment. We cuddle up to the kindness and dismiss the severity. See, my wife, when she sees people professing to be followers of Christ but live their life any way they want, she calls it OBC. I'm like, what is She's like, that's OBC. I'm like, what is that, babe? 
She's like, it's their own brand of Christianity, right? Sounds kind of harsh, right? A little hard. Well, Mark Batterson thinks the same thing, but he calls it cut-and-paste Christianity. Now, you may have heard this before. Batterson gives us a little insight into the theology of one Thomas Jefferson. He says, see, Jefferson loved the teachings of Jesus. He loved them. But Jefferson was a child of the Enlightenment era. So he didn't really have a cognitive category for the supernatural, for miracles. So over a three-day period, he took a pair of scissors to his King James Bible, New Testament, and he began cutting out everything in the New Testament that had something to do with the supernatural or a miracle. The virgin birth, gone. Walking on water, gone. Water into wine, out. Angels, gone. He even removed the resurrection. And after Jefferson extracted all of the miracles out of the New Testament, he produced a book that was titled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, otherwise known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, when we hear stuff like that, something kind of rises up in us like, you can't do that. You can't just cut stuff out of the Bible and cut and paste and pick and choose. You, you can't do that to the Bible. But here's the truth. While most of us can't imagine taking a pair of scissors to the Bible, when we live behind the wall of arrogant entitlement, we do it all the time. We ignore verses we don't like. Right? And we rationalize away verses that seem just a little bit too radical. And we may not cut them out with a pair of scissors, but the end result is the same. It's still a faith designed around our desires and our wants. How do we rise above this wall? How do we rise above it? We embrace the difficult verses of Scripture. The ones that you don't see on a bumper sticker. Do you ever go by somebody's office and they got it plastered with a bunch of scriptures? Well, these are the ones that you probably won't see there. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has given you. He didn't say don't think of yourself at all. He said think of yourself with sober judgment. Philippians 2.3. Here's another one. Bumper sticker. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. But in humility consider others better than yourself. Love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When you're being persecuted, say you're being persecuted in traffic on 64. Persecuted with somebody waving to you. You know the wave. Do you pray for them? Right? You're being persecuted. Do you pray for them? I know it's hard to, to right away, okay, Father, oh, I'm praying for him. 
We need to begin to see ourselves in light of who God is and not who the culture tells us we are. Okay? And not what we deserve. Not what we believe we're entitled to. When you begin to embrace some of the difficult verses of Scripture, you will nurture a heart of humility and service. Amen? Number three. wall of disconnected isolation. Disconnected isolation. Look, I get it. Life alone, it's easier. It is. But it's emptier. It's emptier. Listen with Dr. Paul Turnier, a Swiss physician and pastor said, no one can develop freely in this world and find a full life without feeling fully understood by at least one person. One person. Let me add, that person or persons, hey, they, they can't be virtual friends. True connection is never just a click away. It's never just a click away because access doesn't equate to intimacy. It doesn't equate to intimacy. One of the perils, I believe, of our social network is that it creates a false sense of community where we Photoshop our flaws and we fake familiarity, right? To overcome the wall of disconnected isolation, we have to connect with real people in real time. How do we do that? How do we do that? By practicing one word. It's a word that strikes fear in the hearts of many. And it it can initiate our fight-or-flight response with one word. The word? Vulnerability. Vulnerability. Vulnerability is the core. It's the center of meaningful human experience. In her book, Daring Greatly, Brene Brown, she, de- she defined vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, emotional exposure. She goes on to say that many people, they incorrectly label vulnerability as a weakness, as a weakness, which is funny because according to Webster's, the word vulnerability, it's derived from the Latin word vulnerare. Listen what it means, to wound, capable of being wounded, open to attack or damage. Conversely, weakness is defined as an inability to withstand an attack, or damage. So from a linguistic perspective, these are two entirely different concepts, entirely different. In fact, one could even say that weakness stems from a lack of vulnerability. So it's not a weakness. It's not a weakness. You know what else it isn't? It isn't dumping all your baggage at the first offer to share, right? It's not purging. It's not indiscriminate disclosure. It's especially not the celebrity-style social media dumping grounds that we do online. That's not vulnerability. Vulnerability, it's about sharing our feelings and our experiences with people who have earned the right to hear them. And it's based on mutuality 
and it requires boundaries and trust. Is it scary? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Is it essential? Essential for the life for us to look like Jesus, to to move to be the people he's called us to be, to rise above the wall of disconnected isolation? Absolutely. But many of you don't know me, so don't take my word for it. Let's see what someone much smarter than I once said in his book, Four Loves, C.S. Lewis. To love at all is to be vulnerable. We could stop there. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, give it to no one. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. He goes on to say, listen, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And he says again, to love is to be vulnerable. Folks, it's time to show up and be seen. It's time to to make a connection with people you trust and let them behind the wall of your life so they can see who you really are. The, The days of posing and pretending, it's over. If you want to rise above the wall, of disconnected isolation, then then find and connect with people that God has centered around in your life. And just, if some of you for the first time, be honest about your struggles, about your hopes, about your fears, and about your dreams. And I promise you, you will rise above. The last one. Here's the last wall. I saved it for the end because I think it's the hardest of all of them to overcome. The wall of justifiable resentment. Justifiable resentment. Everyone in here is different. We all come from different backgrounds. We have different perspectives, different views of the world, completely different. And yet, we do have one thing in common. Every one of us has been hurt. Every one of us has been hurt. Someone somewhere has said something or done something that has hurt us. And the pain of that hurt, it changes the way we look at them. It changed how we see them now. Sometimes it changes how we see all people. Look, friends, family, coworkers, church members, They rub up against us, and they cause minor irritants and offenses, right, all the time. But I think we learn early on that if we're going to live a semi-happy life, we're going to have to let a lot of that stuff go. But the wall of justifiable resentment, I don't think that's what that is. This is a wall that usually begins to be built when somebody wounds us deeper than a mere slight. 
when someone hurts us, it's like we go in to lawyer mode and we begin to build a case against them, right? We're all lawyers when somebody hurts us, right? So we begin to build a case against them. And it's as if facts in our favor fall from heaven. And we're certain that God himself is on our side, right? But just in case he needs a little help, we assemble a crack team of prosecutors around us to agree with everything we say, right? But here's the problem. That trial, it never comes. It never comes, at least not on this side of heaven. So we're stuck carrying boxes and boxes of evidence against our offenders. And while they go on with their life, we're weighed down with the weight of the evidence, right, waiting for our day in court. And the longer we wait, the longer we wait, the weightier it gets. And the weightier it gets and pushes us down, the higher bitterness and resentment rises. And as bitterness and resentment rises, it's as if color drains out of our life. And the world that we see is shaded in a monochromatic gray. And our life begins to feel and look a lot like a cold, dark, lonely winter's night in East Berlin. So what do we do? How do we rise above it? Before I share that, everyone's, everyone's journey to forgiveness is going to look different. That's the challenging thing about healing and forgiveness. There's no three quick steps. It all looks different for every one of us. But here's the paradox. It all starts at the exact same place. And that place is a three-word prayer. It's a three-word prayer. Lord, I'm willing. Lord, I'm willing. If you're here tonight and you've been carrying unforgiveness, or you feel weighed down with resentment, locked behind the wall of justifiable resentment, I want to encourage you to say that prayer tonight. Lord, I'm willing. And that will begin your journey towards forgiveness, towards healing. But there's something you need to know. Forgiveness, it's not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. The minute we begin to measure our forgiveness based on how we feel, we fail. Forgiveness never has been and never will be 
based on how we feel. It has always and will always be based on who he is, not how we feel. Amen? As we finish, I want to ask you a question. Will you tonight, if you're living behind the wall, stuck, I'd say, behind the wall of justifiable resentment, will you tonight pray the simple prayer of, Lord, I'm willing. Lord, I'm willing. You may have to pray that prayer hundreds of times a day, and that's okay. Because when those feelings come up, and they will, I would like you to just pause because they're going to be there. Take a breath. This is very important. Watch your words and say, Lord, I'm willing. And as you do, he will show you parts of his character that you've never known before. And he'll begin to show you things about yourself that you never knew. And maybe, just maybe, he'll begin to give you some insights into your offender that causes you to replace your anger with compassion. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how Jesus changes us and sets us free. Can the worship team come back up, please? I want to say this. I know. We talked about stubbornness, entitlement, isolation, unforgiveness. But those are just a few. Those are just a few of the walls. There are others. Maybe yours is people-pleasing and not arrogant entitlement. Maybe it's insecurity and not stubbornness, right? Maybe it's unbelief, some doubt, comparison, addiction. See, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what the title of the wall is because the way over is the same. And that way is through Jesus Christ. Stand with me. As we go into worship tonight, I want you to ask, Lord, what, what is preventing me? What's keeping me from, from experiencing everything you've called me to be? Every gift you have for me. What's keeping me back? Is he shows you that name. It'll probably be one, two words. This is your wall. And as we go into worship, whether your prayer is, Lord, I'm willing. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I repent. I accept it. You will rise above when you press in to the person of Jesus Christ. Let's do that during worship.